So we see our time um, in the Word each week in, in several layers. Um, we think it's something that uh, feeds us for the week. We think it's something that sharpens uh, who we are and changes us as God's people. Um, all of those things. But further down the list of good things that it is, is also an opportunity for uh, those that we believe have um, the character and the maturity uh, to grow in skill. And so this morning, if you don't know him yet, I want to introduce you to Jack, Jack Wayaneth. I think is how you pronounce his name. I don't know. All right. We've known each other for like a year and a half now. I don't, Wayaneth. We'll go. Just Jack. All right. So Jack often plays piano for us. You normally see him up here. Uh, I, I put him into the role of teaching uh, our uh, kind of third through fifth grade class on Wednesday nights during our midweek activities, and he's done a good job there. And so I asked him to come and preach this morning. He's going to cover Psalm 8 for us. And so um, let's pray for him as he comes and, and, and gives us God's word. Father, thank you for uh, the scriptures. Thank you that we have a church family that loves them so dearly and is anticipating what you will say. Uh, speak through Jack in this moment. Thank you for his personality and his intellect and, and, and all of his preparation over the last couple of weeks. Uh, those are good things, but more than those things, we need you to speak your word. We need your spirit to indwell in our hearts and cause us to receive it and be changed by it. So do that now. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Is it working? Yeah. Good morning. How's it going? Ah, what a beautiful day. I am so excited that we're finally moving into the summer. Ah, like the snow being gone gives me so much joy. But all right. So let's open up our Bibles to Psalm chapter 8, starting in verse 1. So for those of you who might not have been here in the last couple of weeks, we've been taking some time to cover the book of Titus um, and exploring what it has to say about church leadership. And we've learned some really amazing things about the qualifications of an elder in the church and the warning signs to look out for in a leader. And because some of those warning signs are not being young, uncharismatic, or single, <laughs> Pastor Stephen has graciously given me the honor of preaching today. So this week we're going to be taking a quick break from Titus, and instead we're going to be exploring the amazing nature of God's majesty as it's found in Psalm 8. So this book is, so Psalms in general is composed of 150 books split into five sections, and they were written over the span of a thousand years of ancient Israel's history. They contain a mixture of poetry, songs, praises, and laments meant to encourage God's people through times of trouble. They act as a reminder for us of God's faithfulness. They, they set the hearts of God's people into a proper place of worship, and it is therefore not surprising that many other books in the Bible reference the Psalms and use their rich wisdom as a means to praise God. Psalm 8 was written by King David, the second of Israel's kings and one of the greatest kings the nation of Israel ever had. 
He was very musical, which I love about him. Um, and thankfully, he recorded much of his emotional life story within his psalms. We can thank David for authoring at least 73 of the 150 psalms. And though he was a young shepherd boy living in the countryside, David was used by God to slay the giant Goliath and save his people from the wrath of the invading Philistine nation. David survived multiple assassination plots by the hand of Israel's first king, King Saul, even going to the point of sparing King Saul life multiple times because he was God's anointed. God was a man, or David was a man, that cared much more about God than he did himself. So he was described as a man after God's own heart. But if you know all of his story, then you know that David did not live a perfect life. Despite enduring many trials of faith, he got comfortable, complacent, and prideful, choosing to steal another man's wife while he was off fighting his war, getting that man's wife pregnant, and killing her husband to cover it up. Not exactly what you would think of as an ideal king. Just like David, we are all fallen, sinful people who made terrible mistakes, which cost us very dearly. But despite this, David was a humble king who, when confronted with his blatant sin, was faithful to confess and turn back to God. And it was through the family line of King David that God promised to one day bring us the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Psalm 8 is intentionally sandwiched between Psalms 3 through 7 and 9 through 14. 3 through 7 are poems written by David when he was helpless and weak, being chased in the wilderness by King Saul. They are a passionate cry for the Lord's help from his oppressors. Psalms 9 through 14 are David's poems about God's helpless and weak people pleading for God to save them from their oppressors. So we see a theme of oppressors in these, these two sections. So Psalm 8 takes this narrative of the weak and helpless chased by their, their oppressors and gives us a unique perspective of the nature of God's created ordering and divine majesty. So without spoiling anything, let's jump in with the intro. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. So right off the bat, we can see that this is a song written by King David. Most biblical scholars believe a Gittith is either some sort of musical instrument or a notation. Believe me, in all my days of playing the piano, I've never seen or heard of a Gittith. Um, thankfully. But what we do know is that King David made this psalm to be shared with God's people. He, he shared it with the worship leader, the worship team of God's people to remind them of God. So David wanted the whole congregation of God to hear this, and he chose the medium of song to present it. So on to verse one. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So fun fact, Psalm 8 is actually constructed in a pattern called an inclusio, which means it starts and ends in the same way. So if you look at verse 9, it also repeats the statement, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This actually matches very well with the style of the book being sandwiched between the 11 other psalms about oppression. David answered, David's answer to this oppression 
and the oppression of God's people was, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And found within the middle of this double bread slice sandwich of truth, we find the lunch meat of truth, which is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So what we see is the Bible pointing to something enormously important. It's quite beautiful, uh, the poetry that David puts within the ordering of everything. Um, And it kind of makes me hungry, but aside from that point. (laughs) This is very convenient for us as it highlights right away the theme of the passage. So if you had to put down your Bibles and leave right now, you could say the meaning of Psalm 8 is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But since we have the time, we might as well explore more deeply everything in between these two verses, as this will help us to grasp what King David is poetically pointing to as so very important. So great. What does, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth mean? Well, let's start with, O Lord, our Lord. Four seemingly simple words that possess two incredible truths. O Lord shows us that we know God. How else could you say the name Lord, who holds such majesty in all the earth, unless it was revealed to us? By placing an O in front of Lord, David is emphasizing the name that follows, seemingly out of a deep reaction to something David has witnessed, or out of a profound truth that David would like to admire God for. Certainly, we can gain a bit of insight into King David's heart through his usage of O Lord rather than just simply Lord. And secondly, our Lord, this takes it a step deeper, and it shows us that we don't, that not only that we know God, but that God knows us. And this isn't simply an acknowledgement that, yes, within God's infinite knowledge, I guess that he is aware of the existence of human beings on the planet Earth, but a possession of us, similarly to a father claiming that this child is my offspring. If you consider the vastness of God's creation, the grand, complex nature of creation, and who we are compared to it, it should amaze you that God cares for any of us, let alone those of us that rebel against him daily. Talk about an introduction. How much depth is dripping off of just four words? O Lord, our Lord. But David's only really getting started. He goes on. How majestic is your name in all the earth. This is an obvious statement of praise towards God. Human beings, having filled the whole earth as a result of being fruitful and multiplying, have surely seen that God's name is majestic in all the earth. There isn't a single square mile on earth where you could go where God forgot to create something. No, his entire earth is completed, and everywhere we go, we cannot escape evidence of the majesty of God's name. Well, that's good and all, but what does any of this matter? Well, for God's people who regularly found themselves in unknown lands, enslaved or exiled, and oppressed by enemy nations, it was quite a comfort to know that anywhere on earth that they found themselves, that the name of the Lord was still majestic. They knew God, and God knew them. Keep in mind that psalms are made to encourage God's people. So, how do we make sense of God's name being majestic in all the earth? Well, I think we need to understand what majesty means. 
We all might have a vague idea about the meaning of majesty, though majesty is a very churchy word that you don't really hear in many places other than the scripture and the pulpit. So I don't blame you if its meaning has flown right over your head. The Greek word for majesty is megaloprepes, which means magnificent, superb, and transcendent. These aspects give you the sense of a being with intrinsic goodness set aside in a class of its own. Whereas Webster's Dictionary defines majestic as stateliness, imposing grandeur, lofty, noble, and grand. You might imagine a king sitting on a throne with gold weaved into their clothing, holding a gem-encrusted scepter and commanding an army of thousands while living in a palace. Certainly that's what I think of. That person resembles nobility, imposes a grand nature, and might even have a class that is transcendent to the ordinary man. Certainly, for most people in our society, the thought of reaching these heights seems out of reach. There are hardly any royalty left in the world, and the ones that we do have are only really ceremonial positions. There are plenty of billionaires and politicians out there that we might define as stately, grand, or lofty, though only the most prideful of them would claim that they are transcendent. You might even say that King David knew something of what it was like to be majestic. He was one of the greatest kings Israel ever saw. He was stately, grand, and noble. He was a young, handsome warrior who was well-respected and loved, and it most definitely went to his head. Instead of going off to war with his men, King David chose to stay home in his palace and enjoy the perks of being the king. Out of this selfish posture, King David lusted over and stole Bathsheba, murdered her husband Uriah, and covered it up with adultery. <laughs> Again, not the kind of king that we think of when we think of majesty. King David demonstrated the fatal flaw of humanity, a sinful heart towards God. You see, human majesty is toxic to those who grasp it. It was never supposed to reside with humanity in the first place. Consider with me how much of a sin it was for God's chosen people, God's chosen people, Israel, to ask the almighty God of creation for a king to rule over them. God was their king. Yet, they wanted to look more like the pagan nations around them than submit to God. So, what a big surprise it is when humans are easily corrupted around much power and wealth. Many are the heroes of the Old Testament who were given amazing opportunities, abilities, and possessions and chose to use them for selfish gain and self-praise. Moses, the leader of God's people in the wilderness, angrily questioned, how long must we put up with you, Israel? Not how long must God put up with you? Effectively equating himself with God. King Solomon, which was King David's son, the wisest and wealthiest man to ever live, chose to abandon God by bringing idol worship into Israel. Sin is multi-generational multi rebellion that festers in the hearts of mankind and robs us of our right to sit on a throne. And therein lies the uniqueness of the Greek word majesty, the word transcendence. That which is not only separating us socioeconomically, but what separates fallible mortals with a perfect eternal God. No name other than the Lord holds the nobility, the stateliness, the magnific magnificence, 
the superbness, the lofty grand nature, and the transcendence over the whole earth than that of the Creator Himself. You might say that God is holy, set apart from humanity. Anytime human beings are put in a place of majesty, they are doomed to fall. But anytime majesty is ascribed to the Lord, everything in creation falls into its proper place. For a nation that faced frequent oppression, David is making the main point that the Lord is intentionally known by mankind, personally possessive of his people, and that his name is transcendent across all the earth. What a wonderful truth to sing about together as a congregation. So, if biblical majesty belongs to the Lord and fills the whole earth, then what of his glory? Let's explore what the passage says in verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. But where are we actually talking about? Well, there's actually three different meanings of the word heavens in the Bible. One meaning is the earth's atmosphere. Another meaning is the expanse of outer space, the stars and planets. And the last one being the realm where God the Father's throne resides, above and over the universe. The first two heavens we have seen. In fact, the moment you step outside this church building, you will see the first heaven, filled with birds, wind, and clouds. And if you look high enough, you might see a small pressurized capsule filled with about 100 people moving across the blue canvas at 500 miles an hour. The second heaven, you might have to wait a little bit longer for. Let the sun set over the horizon, and then you will see tiny specks of starlight glinting through the endless vacuum of space. Light that has been traveling since before you were ever born just to enter your eyeballs and make you feel small. But what about the third heaven? How long do you have to wait to see that one? Well, not as long as you might imagine. Ecclesiastes describes our lives like a puff of smoke. In one moment it's there, and then it's vanished. There is an amazing theme that develops as we keep stepping up the heavens. They get more and more amazing the higher we get. And the heavenly realm, which we see here in verse 1, where God's glory resides, is greater than the greatness of our solar system. A realm so beyond the reach of humans that without the intervention of God himself, no human eye could ever see it. If you think God is showing off by making the universe so incomprehensibly big, then you haven't seen the third and highest heaven yet. And because God's glory is so out of reach of mankind, it also makes God's glory undiminishable by human action. If human beings cease to exist, God's glory would still be set above the heavens in the same way that God's majestic name is not dependent upon human beings or their shifting opinions. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that applies to his glory as well. No amount of science or engineering will ever be able to make God's glory less glorious. Even if we develop crazy futuristic technology to travel God's endless majestic cosmos, his glory will still be set in the highest heaven unchangeable. And if you think humans haven't tried to change God's glory already, then I invite you to recall the story of the Tower of Babel where the people of earth selfishly attempted to build a tower to the highest heaven, not out of a desire to be with God, but to be God. Though we cannot by our own efforts ascend to the highest heaven, God can most definitely come down to us. 
In fact, if God never did leave the highest heaven, how could we ever use the claim of, O Lord, our Lord? Who was Jesus Christ if not the Son of God seated at the right hand of God in the highest heaven, come way down to earth to save God's people? The same Jesus later on in the Gospels of Matthew in chapter 10, verse 28 says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This comes with very good reasoning. One day our earthly bodies will die and decay and return to the dust that it was formed out of. But the spirit will last forever, either in the highest heaven with God or in that which is even lower than the earth, hell. So when we say God's glory is set above the heavens, what we're saying is that God's glory cannot be altered by anything physical. It's greater than what humans can comprehend and is undiminishable by human opinion. So how does God choose to show off his majestic glory? Well, let's find out in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Or, as the NIV puts it, through the praise of infants, or sorry, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemy to silence the foe and the avenger. What? <laughs> Babies? <laughs> now, be honest with me. If Russian paratroopers started falling out of the sky outside, which of you would run to the nearest baby for protection? No one. <laughs> and if you did, I'm sure Chris and Paul would seriously judge you. <laughs> so what is David saying here? Well, it's not that the babbling of babies is some kind of super weapon, but that God is so mighty and strong that he can and does use the weakest things imaginable to close the mouths of his enemies. God's power is so dominant that the babbling of babies is a mighty weapon in his hands. But why? Why this upside-down kingdom approach to fighting his enemy? It all has to do with his glory. Mainly that when God defeats his foe, the enemy and the avenger, with that which is weak, no one can deny that he is strong. This is a unique strength, a unique praise that we struggle to understand. And indeed, the shepherds on Christmas Eve struggled to understand when the baby Jesus laid helplessly cold in a manger. Philippians 2, 6 through 11 says this about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not, God not only used the babbling of babies to establish his strength and praise, but he became that babbling baby when he sent Jesus to earth to take on flesh. This was the most unexpected way God could have saved the world. 
All of Israel believed that the Messiah would arrive as a mighty conqueror to slay their Roman oppressors and bring about an earthly kingdom that would never end. Certainly, those were the kind of oppressors they read about in Psalms 3 through 7 and 9 through 14. Though, God's plan went much deeper than that. God wanted to once and for all silence the ultimate oppressor of humanity, sin and death. God's majesty and strength was known to the world by sending a baby who grew up to be a servant and is now in heaven interceding to God on our behalf. And Jesus' servanthood to us will not stop when he returns the second time. Remember, God is the same yesterday, today, and always. Jesus humbling himself and washing our feet was not a one-time exception to his divine stateliness. It was a demonstration of it. Jesus loving the least of these was not an exception to his noble standards, but was an expression of his eternal love. Jesus dying on the cross for you was not a one-time exception from his transcendent magnificence, but was the once and for all declaration of his majestic name in all the earth. Using the weak things of the world is how God chooses to show his strength. To the sinful world, this idea is utter nonsense. When hardships appear, the world's solution is to try harder or give up, to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and press on or sit down and wait to die. The world only really has these two options. The more optimistic unbeliever dismisses the seriousness of their suffering, choosing to brush pain aside, saying, tomorrow will be a better day, or the sun is just over the horizon. This kind of self-encouraging propaganda might trick our emotions temporarily, but it never solves the heart of the problem. The pessimistic unbeliever abandons all hope for meaning. No interest is more important than their own because life is short. YOLO. If life has no meaning, then I might as well have as much fun on earth as I can before I die. I'm sure we've all heard that before. And if suffering appears, then the answer is always, well, that's just how the world is. To them, the universe is no more majestic than what they read in science books. How wonderful is it that God uses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise? That aside from Jesus, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It is of paramount importance to humanity that God's name is majestic in all the earth because there is no other way for mankind to be saved but through it. Just after Jesus finished healing the blind and lame in the temple in Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 21, verses 15 through 16 says, But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. Jesus is quoting Psalm 8. The children lifting their voices in praise to Jesus and the chief priests and the teachers of the law being silenced. The children were shouting, Hosanna, or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To Jesus, the son of David, 
King David prophesied this moment 14 generations before Jesus was ever born. That's like your great, 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 great grandfather predicting the exact words others would say about you. But more than that, these children showed an innocence and enthusiasm to God that was beautiful. And it shows that worshiping God goes much deeper than mere head knowledge, but involves a proper heart posture. God loves honest worship. I love talking with younger children because they're still too young to understand hiding your intentions. Their questions are unfiltered and their motivation is obvious. You can almost always tell when a five-year-old is lying. But you and I have become experts in deception. We have learned the exact phrases and body language to show to make others think about us what we want them to think about us. We might have fooled each other, but we cannot fool God. He adores worship that is pure like children. God also loves humble worship. Advertisement companies have it all figured out. By triggering an emotional response, they can get you to react to their product. It's the funny scene, anger-inducing political smear campaign, or the, in the arms of the angels, song that compels us to pull out our wallets. And we rarely ever react to the ad the first time, but it's the slow chipping away at the iceberg until it eventually tips over. As much as you'd like to think you can make a logical decision about the relevancy of an ad, it's the monkey jumping across the screen slapping the gorilla that grabs your attention. But this is a dangerous, selfish attitude to hold about the Bible because the Bible is not trying to sell you something. As if you had something to give to God anyways. He doesn't need you. The Bible actually says the opposite. (laughs) that God bought you (laughs) and that you need him. Our praise to God should be out of desperation for him, just like that of babies and infants for their parents. God's majesty is not something that you're supposed to hold up to the world and weigh it and think if you want to buy it. God also loves sacrificial worship. Worship does indeed involve our emotions, and God loves a cheerful giver, but it's not entirely emotion. The book of Romans gives us a wonderful picture of worship. Just after referencing a hymn of praise about God's holiness from Isaiah 40, the apostle Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Giving God's, your life, giving God's your life's time, energy, and wealth all demonstrate to God a surrendering of our wills and uplifting of his. Worship must flow from an honest, humble, and sacrificial posture. And verses 3 and 4 are a perfect example of a worship-producing truth. If you look at me with verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Very similarly to verses 1 and 2, we see the insane contrast between the scale of God's creative power and his unexpected interest in mankind. Is God intended to set the sun and the moon exactly where he pleased, 
so too is his loving care for mankind intentional. God made the universe in a very defined and purposeful way. Now, the word heaven in verse 3 refers to outer space, the expanse of billions of trillions of stars and planets and wonders that stand purely for the sake of showing God's glory and power. The passage describes the universe as the work of God's fingers, meaning each molecule is designed, built, and sustained by God's fingers. Though God's Oh, through God's all-knowing nature, he intentionally set in place the moon in the exact position in space to provide us with ocean waves. And he set perfectly in place a giant flaming ball of nuclear fire to gently warm our faces. If that's not God's majesty in creation, then I don't know what is. So after comprehending the splendor of God's universe, what does this verse say about you and me in comparison? Well, rightly so, it questions, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? We are very undeserving of God's attention. Not only are we tiny in the grand scheme of everything, but we are even daily rebellious against God. Of all the delights in God's creation, human beings are the least deserving of God's attention let alone his loving care. God would not be in the least bit guilty of wrongdoing if he chose to treat us like we treat ants. But for reasons we cannot understand, God cares very much about humanity. For those of you who are biblical scholars, you might know that verses 3 and 4 compose something called a couplet. Two lines of verse, usually in the same meter and joined by rhythm, that form a single unit. It tells us that these verses are connected in meaning. So then, what is the connection between God creating the universe in a defined, purposeful way and God showing caring mindfulness to a very undeserving humanity? Well, the connection is the good, please, the good pleasure of God's will for his ultimate glorification. I love how Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says it. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. In other words, God chose to create an awesome universe and to joyfully love an unworthy sinner like you and me because your awe in witnessing his awesome universe and receiving his undeserved grace gives God his well-deserved glory. The incalculable joy of God is to have his people delight in his majesty and his people's greatest joy is to be a witness to his incalculable majesty. Or, as Pastor John Piper famously says it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. What more could we ask for that God is mindful of us so that his name might be majestic in all the earth? Through God's consideration of us, though God's consideration of us gets even more bonkers when we read verse 5. 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with the glory with glory and honor. In our initial creation, God made us a little lower than the angels. Other translations replace angels with heavenly beings or God. All three seem pretty distinct, though I think the main idea to be taken here is that God made us a little lower than that which resides in the highest heaven. As we established earlier, the highest heaven as we established earlier, the highest heaven is where God's glory is unchangeable, undiminishable, and incomprehensible. Just short of this crazy standard of glory, God made man in the Garden of Eden. John Calvin, John Calvin says it this way, We see that miserable men, in moving upon the earth, are mingled with the vilest creatures, and therefore God, with very good reason, might despise them and reckon them of no account if he were to stand upon the consideration of his own greatness or dignity. The prophet, therefore, speaking interrogatively, abases their condition, intimating that God's wonderful goodness is displayed the more brightly in that so glorious a creator whose majesty shines resplendently in the heavens, graciously condescends to adorn a creature so miserable and vile as man is with the greatest glory, and to enrich him with numberless blessings. If we had in mind to exercise his liberality towards any, he was under no necessity of choosing men who are but dust and clay, in order to prefer them above all other creatures, seeing he had sufficient number in heavens towards whom to show himself liberal. Whoever, therefore, is not astonished and deeply affected at this miracle is more than ungrateful and stupid. You have to love the unapologetic tone of Calvin. I'll argue, therefore, that if the majesty of God is so on display in his consideration of us that our praising him is not just a recommendation, but a demand. Surely, as God's majestic name is majestic in all the earth, then there is no excuse for not responding to it in praise. Anything else is blatant rejection and sin. Notice the first few words of verse 3. When I look, or when I consider, King David was brought to this state of wonder and worship simply when he tried to consider the natural way God ordered the world. If we want to be humble, honest, and sacrificial worshipers of God, the easiest way to prepare your heart is by considering God's majestic creation in comparison to God's caring consideration of our rebellious and desperate selves. God's blessings did not stop after God formed us from the dust. But as verse 6 continues, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. God gave us dominion in the beginning. This verse is an echo back to Genesis 1.26, where God says, Let us make mankind in our image, in the likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, 
and over all creatures that move along the ground. And it all sounds so nice until you keep reading to Genesis chapter 3, where mankind sinned against God, lost their dominion, and were kicked out of the garden. Now, you might see the earth and disagree that humanity lost its dominion. After all, we are at the top of the food chain, created cities, governments, and we even passed laws concerning the protection of the environment. But go try to pet a grizzly bear and tell me afterwards that you have dominion over it. Sin and death have twisted the natural order and stripped humanity of the crown of glory and honor found in verse 5. But God had a plan to restore our dominion by sending his one and only son, Jesus, into the world to live the perfect life that neither you or I could live. Jesus freely offered his life as payment for our sins by dying on a Roman cross. And by his resurrection three days later, he conquered sin and death once and for all and ascended to heaven. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 says, Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. When you trust in the majestic name of Jesus, he becomes your head, and you become his body. And all of the dominion, honor, and glory that were placed on Jesus' head will be restored to you as part of God's body in Christ. If you're a follower of God, I'd like you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind when considering Christ Jesus. Seek to praise God with honest, humble, and sacrificial posturing. Consider his creation. Do it often and be amazed by it. It's not hard to look around and see it everywhere. Even walking outside, you can see it. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, then that invitation is free to you. No matter what you have done or said or thought, God still loves you. He's still considerate of you. Despite the vastness of the universe, he still loves you. And he still died to give you life. If you're tired of feeling empty and searching for meaning, then look no further than the God who fills everything in every way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We see it mentioned first in verse 1, and we see it closing the psalm in verse 9. In the introduction, this acted as a reminder to God's forgetful people and a heartfelt response to witnessing God's majesty. But reading it here, it acts as a declarative statement, one of praise, one which I hope that we won't take lightly. I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing, but if you want to take that first step of trusting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then please don't wait to talk with me or any of the church elders. God, I'm so grateful for you and your awesomeness. Your name is truly great and majestic in all the earth. Lord, there's 
no way any of us could arrive to a fullness of joy in this world without first recognizing that you are king over creation. God, there are so many distractions in this life. I pray that we would set them aside and that we would acknowledge you that, Lord, no gift of creation would ever become greater than the creator himself. Lord, we are humbled by you. Lord, we want to be honest in our praise. We want to be sacrificial in our praise, giving our entire bodies to you. Lord, we want to be your children. We want you just as much as you want us. Even less, Lord, your love is greater than human love. God, please give us a heart that desires you. Help us to give you praise and let you be glorified in our satisfaction of you. In all of this we pray in the great, glorious, majestic name of Jesus. Amen.